everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I am joined by Terry Fakes today. We have entered the final five of our Bible book overviews. Yeah, it's uh, a day we we weren't sure we would see, but here we are. <laughs> and we've actually, you think, well, you guys are doing cleanup with, you know, whatever the dregs of the books of the Bible. But actually, we say some of the more difficult and some of the little gems for last. Right. Yeah, we've got second and third John that we're combining this week. We'll also combine first and second Chronicles, like we did with first and second Samuel, first and second Kings. We've got the book of Ruth, Song of Solomon, and the book of Hebrews. So Hebrews is the one that we'll do last. I think it's kind of a fitting capstone to tie the whole Bible together. Mm-hmm. And uh, with the emphasis on the focus of Christ as the central theme of the whole Bible. But over the next couple of months, we'll get to finish this up. And uh, this week, we're looking at the two shortest books of the Bible and uh, two really interesting little letters that, as we were talking about this in our prep work, really should be taught more. I mean, there is so much in these two letters. They should be memorized and taught more because they are quick and easy to get the point, but there's a lot of richness in here. There really is. These these little letters have had a storied past, and I don't mean entirely negative. I mean, for 1600 years they've been accepted by the church and and but the question really revolves around you know how did they get preserved i mean you have these two letters one probably to a church really short one to an individual kind of like the letter of philemon and i do think that these probably got attached to first john and that's how we have them and i think there's a reason that we have them i agree with you i think it hits a couple of i mean for being so short they hit two really profound ideas. Mm-hmm. The history of these letters is interesting, much like the letters of Paul. How did we get ones? And then we have ones from Paul that we know we didn't have preserved. And and, and why? Which one? Of course, the overarching idea is the Holy Spirit preserved the Word of God, and we have exactly what He wanted us to have. But even on a human level, sometimes it's interesting to think, okay, why did this one and not the letter to the Laodiceans or you know, true second Corinthians instead of first and third, like we have, why didn't, right. why didn't those get preserved or the other ones that he must've written here with, with John, I, I agree. First John probably is the one that these were tacked onto. You have a little Johannine packet of letters. I really would make the case and uh, we don't have the time to go into all of the background. You know, there's a big dispute over which John may have written these. We're assuming that this is right. John the apostle, but I would make the case that Second John is to the church. We don't know exactly what church this is to. Right. Second John is to a church, and Third John is to the individual Gaius who is in that church. Mm-hmm. And I agree. So I would say this is a lot like Colossians and Philemon, like you pointed right. out. Right. Colossians is to the whole church. Philemon is a member of the church. He's a mm-hmm. a, a leader in that church and a home in his uh, a church in his home, and it is to him specifically tacked on to that more general letter. I think that's probably what's going on here with second and third John and possibly with first John as well being to the church in general with second John. And then third John is to an individual and Demetrius most likely is the one who's delivering this letter, which we'll talk about later in uh, third John. But yeah, I think we should read these as a broad letter to a church and a specific Mm -hmm. letter to a person in that same church. And that really is the key to the themes going together in these letters. On first read, they're actually pretty separate. But if you look at the second half of 2 John, 
and then all of Third John. It revolves around this idea of hospitality and false mm-hmm. teaching, which which we'll get into. So, from the overview, there there is a little bit of a question of well, how do why do we have these, and what was the original purpose? There's also the question of authorship that I mentioned. We're assuming this is John the Apostle. So if you think back to what we know from church tradition, uh, a little bit from the end of the Gospel of John, John is the longest living disciple. He is the only one that's not martyred, although that doesn't mean he didn't go through a lot of persecution. There's tradition that he was boiled in oil. There's uh, obviously the biblical record that he was exiled for the work of the Lord on the island of Patmos. That's where the book of Revelation was written. And then Mm -hmm. people discuss whether or not he wrote the gospel and the letters before or after Revelation. Some of that depends on when you date Revelation. I tend to take them after the book of Revelation. And so I would put these letters, specifically 2nd and 3rd John, at the very end of John's life. Let's say even into the 90s of the first century, when he is a very old man. He's been pastoring at Ephesus. And if you want to go back to our message on our, our podcast on the Book of Ephesians. Ephesus is the church outside of Jerusalem in terms of the long-lived pastoral and apostolic impact. I mean, you have Paul there serving. You have Timothy there serving. You have John serving. They have a letter from Paul. They have a letter, you know, two letters to Timothy while he's there. You've got John writing while he's there. You've got Jesus writing a letter to them in Revelation. I mean, Ephesians is one of the churches in the New Testament, and it's kind of fitting that that's where John ends up at the end of his ministry. You know, one of the things I like about this too, Cole, is if you think about second and third, first, second and third John being written, whether you think it's maybe 85 or 95, either way, it's about one whole generation after the main events in the church. I mean, if you think about the book of Acts and the beginning of the church, uh, you know, that's starting in the 40s. And then Paul's writing through the 50s. This is a generation later. And one of the really interesting things is seeing what are the challenges of the, maybe I'll call it the second generation of believers in the church. And you start to see things that are very familiar to us. Uh, You're going to see this in 2 John, this relationship between truth and those out perverting the truth. In 3 John, you're going to see this idea of hospitality and missionaries. And and it really, to me, is something we can identify with because it's not the first generation of believers. Right. And you're going to see John as an old man. He says in both of these that it's a great joy to see his children walking in the truth. Of course, he's talking about his spiritual children. But I think that lends itself to this kind of second generation, really third generation Christians emerging in these churches and the problems that they're facing. And John is the consummate pastor in these letters. And we know at the end of his life, that's what he was doing. And there's a story that's told about John. This is not biblical, but it comes down in church tradition. I think it's just a great picture of what John must have been like. He's passing through this area. He's preaching the gospel, and he has a young man who comes and accepts Christ. He begins to pour into him, and then John ends up as an itinerant pastor going to other places. And years later, he comes back, and he wants to check on this disciple. So he's talking to the elders of the church, and they say, oh, well, he unfortunately didn't keep on the way. He left the church, fell in with some robbers. He's become a criminal, and he lives outside in this valley where these robbers hide out and rob people. So John is immediately 
distraught. He goes out to this valley and people are pleading with him saying, if you go out there, they're going to kill you. This is their hideout. You know, you can't go there. Just let him go. And John goes out there. He's an old man. So he hikes up and he gets there and he says, take me to this man. And when he gets into their lair, this is the way I like to picture it. He falls on his knees and begins weeping and pleading with this man to come back into the church. And so, and the man does, and he puts his arm around him and brings him back down out of this robber's lair and back into the church. And I've always thought about that when I think about the apostle John, because, you know, John has such a radical transformation that takes place. We always think of him at the end of his life, the apostle of love, the gospel writer, uh, first John being such a great picture of Christian maturity. But, you know, he started out in the gospels as the, one of the sons of thunder. You know, he and his right. brother James got the got the reputation for having bad tempers and for being a little <laughs> quick on the trigger. And there's a lot uh-huh. that had to transform in him from from going from a son of thunder to the apostle of love and to this kind of pastor. And that's always how I think of John. Same here. Uh, that's a great story. If it's not entirely true, if it's a little bit legendary, it certainly captures the heart of John. Mm-hmm. John is an interesting character because he lived long enough that you do have some legends in the early church about John, some mm-hmm. of which are undoubtedly true. And this one may very well be true. But I, I agree. That is John. And when you read these two letters, they read like a father writing to his children. And in Second John, when it opens, you've already referred to this, but he opens it. The elder to the chosen lady or elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And we are both of the opinion that that's a euphemism for a church. You are a lady, you are the bride of Christ, and the members in your church are God's children in the faith. And he writes to them uh, one of the great lines in verse four, I rejoiced to find your children walking in the truth. And that's so true as a dad. And then now as a grandfather, you really can't think of anything that get, you know really re- makes your soul rejoice more than to know that your children are walking in the truth. And I will hasten to add, though, for those who are listening to this and say, well, but I have a brother or I have a son or I have a daughter who is not. Don't ever give up because God plays a very long game and mm-hmm. prayer is very, very powerful. Mm-hmm. And I think the long life of John is proof of that. No doubt. You know, you talked about the opening of this letter, the elect lady. It's something that's really puzzled people when they come to this. This is not the way that most letters open. You usually just put somebody's name there. And so uh-huh. some people have wondered if this is a name. Uh, right. This, because the Greek could possibly be construed as to the lady eclecte, although that's not really a common name. It could possibly be a name or to the chosen curia, which could be a name, but probably not a name. And so for two reasons, I think this is a church. The first one being, he says, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but all who know the truth love this elect lady. Well, that that makes sense to be a church. Everyone who loves the truth right. love the church. And then secondly, at the end, the final line, it says, uh, the children of your elect sister greet you. Well, that has to be the church that John is writing from. And so I think because of those two reasons, it's very likely this is a church. And so we take this as more of a general message to the church. And John is going to introduce a couple of big emphases uh, in this letter. The, The first one being the relationship between truth, love, and obedience. So you see truth from the very beginning, 
I rejoice knowing that you're walking in the truth. And I'm not writing you a new commandment, he says in verse five, but one that we have from the beginning that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments, obeying him. This is really reminiscent of 1 John in a lot of ways. 1 John plays with these links between truth and love, love and obedience, obedience being following the commands that the Lord has given, the commands of the Lord being to love one another. This is a very popular theme in John's letters. How do you think these three connect in the Christian life and in this letter? That's a great question. And I don't think John originated this himself. You're right. It runs through all of his writings, but he is the disciple that records in the gospel of John Jesus on the night that he was going to head to Gethsemane and he begins to teach his disciples five times in two chapters, just this one long talk that he gives to his disciples. And John writes them all down. Five times Jesus says something to this effect, if you love me, you keep my commandments. The ones who keep my commandments or obey my commandments are the ones who love me. And so you see John carrying out this idea that that love and obedience to Jesus' commandments are inseparable. I think we in modern times like to separate those two. Karen Jobes is a professor at Wheaton and wrote a commentary in one of the series on uh, Second John, and she says it this way. John does not believe that love trumps truth, which is the cardinal sin of our age. And so to answer your question, I think I would say that John has a very healthy, holistic idea. It's not a, a teeter-totter, you know, a balance beam where one side goes up and say, oh, my love goes up. Well, then my truth must go down. Or mm. then the truth goes up. Well, then your love must go down. And I admit there are people who focus on the truth so much they're unloving. And there are people that focus on love so much they miss the truth. But John doesn't look at it as a teeter-totter as one side going up and the other going down. He really sees them more as moving together. In fact, so does Paul. I was just reading this week in in my morning readings uh, in the uh, letter to the Romans, where Paul talks about, let I pray that you will grow in knowledge so that you can love more. I'm paraphrasing that. But the idea of him is knowing the truth and loving more go together. Those two things move as one. So I would say that one of the reasons I think this little gem needs to be read more is to remind us to get away from this Western dualism. It's either you love people or you tell them the truth, that that's not the way Jesus and John saw this. What do you think? Yeah, I I agree with that. My mind also went to the book of Romans. This is an underrated part of Romans, which is in chapter 13, where Paul says, and starting in verse 8, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then he right. goes on, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, shall not murder, shall not steal, shall not covet. Uh, any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, obviously quoting Jesus here. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So there's a connection here between the Old Testament and the New, between truth and love. But notice also the connection between obedience and love. Like John says, I'm I'm writing to you a commandment. It's not a new commandment. It's the commandment, which is to love God and love one another. And uh, this is the commandment we've had from the beginning, 
This is a continuity of what God has been commanding us all along. And so not only do I think, you know, we have that juxtaposition sometimes between truth and love, a little bit of truth, a little bit of love, but really being truthful is loving and being loving is truthful. Obedience is also there. If you notice in the Great Commission, it's not go into all the world and tell people that God really loves them in whatever right. means necessary to convince them. It's no, go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptize people, and teach them to obey all the commands that Jesus has given. Obeying is loving God. This is a big right. theme in First John. Um, you cannot say that you love God without obeying him. Uh, if you do so, you prove to be a liar. James is big on this theme too. There's a continuity between all three of these. And so part of the mature Christian life is realizing and learning to walk in such a way that it is all three at the same time, truthful, loving, and obedient at the same time. So this is really rich application here from these first few verses. And it's played out in kind of an interesting way in the second half of this letter, which turns his attention towards false teaching. And right. not just false teaching, but we have an appearance of the Antichrist here uh, in this letter, just like we did in First John. It says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Christ in the flesh. Some people argue that this is an early form of Gnosticism, which is mm -hmm. basically the belief that the spirit is good, but the flesh is bad. And this right. is very oversimplified. But if that's the case, God really couldn't have come in the flesh. It had to be a spirit right. that looked like he was in the flesh. And therefore, you deny the humanity of Christ. And this is a big deal in First John as well. Uh, so these people are saying he didn't come in the flesh. Such one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but you may win a full reward. So he's reminding the people here, just as he was in First John, there are a lot of false teachers. In fact, in First John, he makes the point that these false teachers are Antichrists, uh, right. contemporary Antichrists. And we talked about this there and in our episodes on First and Second Thessalonians, that there are some differences in what people mean in the New Testament and when we talk about the New Testament by Antichrist. So we might be thinking of a future figure, if that's the way you read some of these texts, especially Revelation. But John clearly was talking about at least some contemporary figures who were Antichrist right. in their doctrine and what they believe right. about their doctrine. And so I think we're probably at a low point in the American church of standing firm on doctrine. Most people think doctrine is boring and uh, making mountains out of molehills. But what John reminds us here is the faith that's been delivered to us is not ours to change. And we should be learning what God has said is true about his son, about the world, about salvation. And we should be standing by that. And anybody that teaches something different than that should be corrected. And that can take place in ways that are again, loving and truthful and obedient. But uh, there are things that we definitely do need to draw some lines in the sand, uh, not just because we want to be smarter than everybody or more theologically accurate, but what John's concern here is, if you change the gospel enough, it prevents people from actually coming to Christ and being saved because they are an right. anti-Christ gospel. Well, you don't want that. And so what you need to do as a church is be on your guard against false teaching. And, and John exhorts people to the extent that if somebody comes and brings this kind of teaching, do not receive them into your house. Do not give them a greeting uh, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. That sounds pretty abrasive for our culture. How would you translate this into today's world? Well, the big uh, problem that modern readers are going to have with that verse is this idea of hospitality. 
that we're to have, that we help people regardless of what they're, whether they believe in God or they do not believe in God. And I don't think this is John saying, and I don't think anybody reads it as, if they come to you and they're starving, you shouldn't give them something to eat. If they show up at your free clinic and they're sick, that you shouldn't heal them. That's not what he's talking about. I think what he's talking about is lend support to the ministries of people that are teaching things that depart from uh, the teaching of Christ as the way he phrases it in verse nine, the doctrine of Christ. So the idea of being supportive, uh, giving money to ministries, supporting organizations that do not teach what Christ is teaching. Now, there's a difference here because, you know, Paul talks about this in First Corinthians 5. He said, basically, expect sinners to sin. People out in the world, you expect them to behave in a certain ways. But this is talking about people who call themselves Christian, but are no longer adhering to the teaching of Christ. For example, verse 9 reads this way. Everyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, in other words, anybody that departs from the historic teaching of Christ, does not have God. And whoever abides in this teaching has both the Father and the Son. So he's talking about people coming to you. Paul called it wolves in sheep clothing. This same idea of coming saying, hey, I'm a Christian, but you know what? Did God really say, you know, that you have to obey him? Mm -hmm. And so it's that same idea. So that's the way I would read it. It's not so much you can't feed the hungry or heal the sick, but we cannot. Uh, affiliate ourselves and support the ministry of someone misleading people. I right. think probably the harshest words, and this is something I've said, I'll see what if you agree with me, but as I've read through the scriptures and I wanted to know what made Jesus and Paul and James and John and Peter most angry, where is the harshest words? Well, people have picked up on this, that some of Jesus' harshest words were to the religious people. But not in general, the harshest words in the New Testament, and particularly in the book of Revelation, when Jesus speaks to the churches, are to people that say they're Christian and are teaching people that sin is okay. In other words, mm -hmm. they are interfering with people's salvation. And I think that's what you said. And I so I think that is a theme through the New Testament. It's not a matter of, oh, I think the end times are going to come this way, and I think the end times are going to come that way. It's departing from the teaching so that you obstruct people from coming to Christ. You lie right. about what is what is the truth. So that's the way I'm going to read it in the context of the New Testament. What, what are your thoughts? I totally agree with that. I think if you think about Jesus' words for Jezebel in the book of Revelation, it's because she has taught the people in the church that sexual immorality is okay. Participating in the pagan cults is okay. That's what gets the harshest treatment, is this false teaching, claiming to be Christian, but teaching something that if the person really believes that, they actually cannot be a Christian, is what right. receives the sternest warnings in the New Testament. So that's what I think John is dealing with here. Now, this plays out in a little bit of a case study almost in Third John. Right. It's really the flip side of this. And a little historical background will be helpful here. In the early church, you had a lot of itinerant preachers, ministers. You see Paul and his associates doing this. And when you would arrive in a town and you would go to the church or the house church, they would be required to take you in and mm -hmm. provide for you, provide a place to stay, provide some food. And also they would allow you to speak at the church. This is really different than the way we do things, obviously. 
But even in the Didache, which is one of the early documents about how the church was operating, it says, you know, receive those who come in the name of the Lord. Anybody who comes in the name of the Lord, receive and provide for them. So what John is saying is, yes, if they're coming in the name of the Lord, if they're coming in the true teaching of the Lord. If not, don't do that. Now, the flip right. side is what's happened in Third John. Probably what's happened here is you have somebody that John knows whose name is Gaius. And this is who the letter is addressed to. And he has received some, some itinerant preachers from John. And you have another person in the church named Diotrephes who has not received these people. In fact, not only did he not receive them and not allow them to speak in the church, he he's turned it around and actually spoken words against John as well. So he's kind of an anti-John type guy. Then what you have is John hears about this, sends a messenger named Demetrius, who's going to go and confront Diotrephes talk to Gaius, assure them, try to get this problem worked out in this church. And the central issue at hand is not giving hospitality to the people you should be giving hospitality to, not right. taking part in the mission, not offering food and shelter, not offering a place in the church for these people who are doing the ministry of the Lord. And so the application is almost the reverse, which is you should always be on the lookout to support the work that God is doing that's right, right in front of you. Today, it's not itinerant preachers as much. It's not maybe traveling evangelists as much. Maybe it's the missions opportunities that are in your community, the things that your right. church is offering that you can serve as a part of, the people in your life that are doing something maybe risky for God. They're stepping out. They're starting something new. They're using their gifts. And you really need to be a part of that. And right. you should uh, take part in what they're doing. And so... Again, he starts the letter by saying, I am rejoicing. I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. That would be Gaius. And then uh, he says, but mm -hmm. we've got a problem here. We've got Diotrephes who likes to put himself first. Imagine being Diotrephes. This is how you get remembered for all of church history. Uh, the one who loves to put himself first. And he is not supporting what they're doing. So this is almost a little story of embracing the work of God in the church versus people who are standing in the way of the work of God in the church. Yeah. It's, it's Diotrephes has got a really bad epitaph here. It goes on to say, uh, Diotrephes is not just content with not accepting them, but he also stops those people in the church who want to receive them and puts those people out of the church. This is somebody who's exercising a really tight, authoritarian grasp on the local church and putting people out of the church, refusing to accept these people because they come from John and Diotrephes isn't going to acknowledge John's authority. It's like, well, they didn't come from me, so we're not going to have anything to do with them. You know, he likes to put himself first. And I, I think in church history, we've seen a number of Diotrephes, and this is a great warning to each of us to not become that. Yeah, I like the way this letter ends. I think if you think about the main themes, we've got truth, love, and obedience, false teaching, hospitality. And both times John says, I had much to write to you, but I'd much rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. This is a, a great little shorthand. You see sometimes in Paul, he says, those who are with me greet you. All the brothers and sisters uh -huh. greet you. I just love that at the end here, John uses the word friends. 
the friends here with me, maybe in the church of Ephesus, or maybe he's traveling, greet you. Greet the friends there, each by name. This is a great way to describe what the church is supposed to be. We use the term friend pretty casually. They had a much more substantial understanding of the word friend than we do, but uh, greet the friends and the friends here greet you. What a great sign off for the church. It really is. You know, to my knowledge, Cole, this is off the top of my head. Uh, this is the only time I remember Christians being referred to this way in the New Testament is as friends. And then it also pulls up to me that is it the Puritans who referred to each other this way? Mm-hmm. I mean, you have the church, the friends church, and and they referred to each other as friends. And I suspect from this passage as fellow Christians, uh, friends in a deep, in a spiritual sense. Right. Now, I think the Quakers have taken that up. Quakers, uh, that's it. As, a, as an address. Right. But yeah, this is a very cool concept to think about. The friends in John's church and the friends uh, in the other church who have a spiritual bond of friendship, not just because they're friends with each other, but they're friends with God and uh, not in a kind of slang way, but friendship with God is something that we have been given in Jesus Christ. And so we immediately have that with each other. And that, that's a very cool way to frame this relationship. I think so, too, because and I'll get on my soapbox for a second. One of the things that's good for me to remember is we hear that, you know, everybody's friendly and thinks of brothers and sisters in their tribe. And that's true with secular people. And sometimes it's true with Christians as well. You know, we're in this tribe, we're in this denomination, or we're in American Christianity. We're not in, you know, Ukrainian Christianity, whatever. But you tend to want to refer to your brothers and sisters or your friends as those in your tribe. And we know that the gospel spans tribes. We, we've brought into a new family, and we are all brothers and sisters. And that word's easy to say. And it's easy for me to get my head around the idea that I am a brother to people who believe in Christ wherever they live. But you know what's harder for me, Cole, is this idea, oh, wait a minute, but you're also my friend. Brother and sister is kind of an academic concept to me. Friend is a concept that hits me in the heart. And that mm -hmm. is, if you follow Christ, then you and I are friends. And that's a powerful word for me. It's it. it gets me and it bypasses my brain a little bit and hits me in the gut and says, you need to realize we are friends with those who follow Christ. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.